0: 1 Corinthians is after the book of Romans, where we were last week, it's in the New Testament, after the Gospels, after Acts, after Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Now would you please follow along with me as I read. This is God's word. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So glorify God in your body. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come um, every, as we do every Sunday before your word, and we want to humble our hearts before you. We want to listen to you. We want to hear from you This is your word. This is you speaking. This is you giving yourself to us. And we want to receive everything you have for us this morning. So I pray that you would quiet our minds and our hearts and that you would help us to turn our attention entirely to you and to your son Jesus and to the spirit who makes your word live. And we offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well. The elders and I have wanted for some time to give attention on a Sunday morning to what the Bible says about sexuality in general and homosexuality in particular. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about the Bible's teaching on this ever since the Chief Justice issued his uh, ruling in the same-sex marriage case, and so... I've wanted, we have wanted, just to to bring clarity to what the Bible teaches, but I'm not this morning going to weigh in on whether the Cayman Islands should recognize same-sex partnerships as marriages, okay? What the Bible has to say about homosexuality should inform how Christians think about that, but the question of how a a diverse democracy should define marriage for everyone within it, that that question goes beyond the scope of what I'm trying to get done this morning. What I want to get done this morning is just to tell you what the Bible says, and then to suggest how we ought to live in light of it. And I realize that this is an extraordinarily sensitive topic. That what we're talking about, this isn't a topic that we can hold at arm's length. We're talking about the lives of real people, people we love, Uh, a, a brother or a daughter or a cousin, a best friend from childhood. Maybe it's you. Maybe you experience same-sex attraction or you're living an openly gay life and you wonder, am I going to be welcome here? Do I I fit with these people? This is not theoretical. So we want to proceed this morning holding tightly to two realities. Okay, You can picture kind of holding one with your right hand and one with your left. And the first reality that we're going to hold to this morning is truth. If you're a Christian, then you know that God has spoken. That he's spoken in this book. He's told us what he thinks about things and how we ought to live. And his words are our ultimate authority, not our experience, not our experience, not the family we grew up in, not the traditions we inherited, not even just our reason, what makes most sense to us. Our ultimate authority is God and what he has said. And so we're going to commit ourselves this morning to ask, what does God say about this? But the second reality, equally important, is love. Christians have many times treated people who are same-sex attracted or in same-sex relationships as enemies, as as some kind of spiritual leper to be shunned or kept away, as jokes. And we are not, sunrise, we are not, not this morning, and not ever going to do that. We are going to live in love, like Jesus. In the ways that Christians have treated same-sex attracted and same-sex living people, we have hindered many from even considering whether Jesus has any relevance to their lives. People who identify as LGBT are made in the image of God. They have inherent dignity and value. And where we disagree with them, we're going to do so with respect And love. Okay, those are our commitments to truth and to love this morning. And some of you I know are going to disagree with what I say this morning. And this is what I'm asking from you. That if you've come to trust me as a pastor and as a Bible teacher, then hear me out. Okay, listen to the end. And if you, at the end, disagree, if you think that I've misunderstood Scripture, if you think that I haven't been fair, then come and talk to me. Or let's set up a time to have coffee, okay? Just let's think of this this morning not as the final word on the subject, but as the beginning of a conversation. I would love to know your story and and how you've gotten to where you've gotten to. I'm not just saying that. I would love that, okay? All right, let's get into it. We're going to look this morning at four truths about sexuality from this passage. And the first is that God created sexuality for a purpose, Sexuality, that we're male and female and the physical expression of our sexuality, those are God's ideas. He made sexuality and sex. God did not bring Adam and Eve together and then catch them enjoying marital intimacy and say, "What are you doing?" That's not what that's for. Right God's attitude about sex is not, "Well, if you have to, I guess you can go ahead, but not too often, and only to have children. That's not his intent. He made them. He made sex good, full of pleasure and power and purpose. He made it for a reason. And this truth is the foundation of everything that Paul says here. And you can see it in chapter 6, verse 13. At the end of verse 13, he says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. He doesn't say the body's not for sex, it's for the Lord. He says it's not for sexual immorality but for the Lord, which means there's a way of using your body sexually that is actually pleasing to God. That's for him. That's for his glory. That's why he can say, on the one hand, in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, and on the other hand, at the end of verse 20, so glorify God in your body. Those are, those are flip sides of the same coin. Flee from sexual immorality. Use your body in such a way that God is glorified. Okay, so what does that look like? Paul is going to tell us, but first we need to know what's going on in Corinth, okay? So the reason why he's writing this to the Corinthian church is that these, there are people in the church at Corinth who are saying that what we do with our bodies has nothing to do with our relationship with God, okay? That they, they wanted to separate their sexuality from their spirituality. They said it's, it's, there's no problem, there's no contradiction between worshiping God, trusting in Jesus, and going to prostitutes of which there were many in Corinth at the time. You can see it in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And Paul knows how they're justifying it, and he quotes what they're saying in verses 12 and 13. So this is what they're saying at Corinth, verse 12. All things are lawful for me. They're saying, I've trusted in Jesus. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. And Paul immediately responds, but not all things are helpful. The reason you've been made free is not so you can do anything you want, but so that you cannot sin. So you can do what builds others up, what's good for your walk with Christ. They say, all things are lawful for me. He says, but I will not be dominated by anything. You shouldn't be doing anything that leads you into slavery, that takes you back into the life that Jesus brought you out of. They say, well, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. They're saying sex is just an appetite. When I'm hungry, I eat. If I want sex, I should just have some. It's just an appetite. It's just my body. It's it's got nothing to do with the Lord. And Paul says, no, the body is for the Lord. It's going to be with him forever. He raised Jesus from the dead. He's going to raise your body too. Your body is going to be his Forever, You have to be very careful about what you do with your body. He has a purpose for it. Okay, so what is the purpose for our bodies? What's the purpose for sex and sexuality? To understand that, Paul takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. So look at verse 16. He said, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her for As it is written, the two will become one flesh. So he takes them back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2, and quotes from that moment, right? You remember that moment when when Adam was alone in the garden, and God saw that he was alone. He saw it wasn't good that he was alone, and he said, I'm going to make a fit helper, a companion for him. So he takes a rib from Adam's side, makes it into a woman, presents the woman to Adam, and this is what he says, then the, woman, then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And here's the part Paul quotes, And they shall become one flesh. So Paul says, you Corinthians, you know what sex is for. It's for marriage. It's for people who leave their father and mother and, and give themselves completely and permanently to one another. Heart, soul, and body. A union so complete that, that he can call it one flesh. They become one thing. And sexual intimacy, it's a picture of that. It's, it's expressing with our bodies how completely we've given ourselves to one another, how, how one we've become. But it also deepens that. It, it unites us. It draws us together. And if you take just that act out of the context of marriage, if you you do it with just anybody or in in front of a computer screen, then you corrupt it. You ruin what God made good. Now, while we're here, let's ask, is what matters to God just the commitment? Is is any commitment what God means by marriage? Or is, is there something specific about a man and a woman? It matters... To Genesis, that it's a man and a woman. Now, God gave Eve to Adam so that together they could fulfill God's call to Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God designed the man and the woman so that when they come together as one flesh, they are fruitful. They do multiply. They fill the earth. It matters that it's a man and a woman, and it matters for a deeper reason, too. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul, same author, he says that marriage is a picture of of the love relationship between Christ and the church, Christ and his people. And that picture only works if the partners are different. Christ and the church are not the same, and it matters that they're not the same, and the same is true in marriage, in human marriage. Marriage by design is for one man and one woman, and sex is for that. Sex matters to God. He made it for a purpose. It shows and deepens the unity of marriage. So what happens if we misuse the good gift God has given. Second point, those who persistently misuse sexuality will face God's judgment. Look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So when the Bible talks about sexual immorality, it means every way of expressing ourselves sexually outside of the purpose of God in marriage. And that includes the one he's already mentioned, prostitution. He mentions adultery. It includes just sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your fiance. And it includes, and I'm sure you saw it, Homosexuality, Men who practice homosexuality, which we'll come back to. And Paul says that those whose lives are characterized by those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So when Jesus comes and he divides humanity into those who will spend eternity in his presence and those who will spend eternity in his absence... Paul says that those who are unrighteous, who have lived habitually in unrighteousness, they won't get into the kingdom. Those those who have not lived with, with God as their king will not inherit his kingdom. Now, notice that Paul doesn't limit that to sexual immorality, right? Christians have sometimes shamed people whose sin is sexual and hard to hide while themselves nurturing and protecting their own sin, which is just a little bit easier to conceal. And Paul won't have that, right? He names sexual immorality, but he also mentions theft and greed and drunkenness, all of which are immediately relevant to life in Cayman. So let's not get into the rut of saying, this one's worse, right? We all have something that we need grace for. Because he says, in fact, that no one who's unrighteous will inherit the kingdom. No one who's unrighteous, and that's all of us apart from the work of God. We saw last week that Paul said in Romans chapter 3 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your struggle might not be named here, but God takes anger just as seriously as what he names here, and pride, and gossip. But Paul does want to make sure that the Corinthians know, because of what they're doing, that those who persist in sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom. They will face God's judgment. Now, do you believe in the judgment of God? Do you believe that a day will come when Jesus will say to some people, depart from me? Because Jesus believed in that day, and the Bible believes in that day. God made us. And he has the right to tell us how to live and what to do with what he's given us, including our bodies. There's a reason why we call him the Lord. When we take something that he made for our good, like sex, and we hijack it, and we say, this isn't going to be for you anymore, this is going to be for me. When we say to God, I'm not interested in what you have to say about how I'm living, we should not be surprised that there will be consequences. We shouldn't be surprised that those who persistently misuse sexuality will face the judgment of God. And that word persistently is really important. Paul is not talking about people who stumble sometimes. We all stumble sometimes. He's talking about people who are no longer trying to walk, who have fallen and are just going to stay there now, who are just going to make that life their life. And Paul says to these Christians, to the people in Corinth, don't let that be you. Look at verse 11. He says, And such were some of you. You used to be that way, but not anymore. He says, You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He said, Once these things defined your life, but now Jesus defines your life. You were washed. Clean of all the guilt and shame of your old life. You were sanctified. You've been made holy. You've been set apart to know God and be used by him. You've been justified. You've been counted righteous in God's sight with the righteousness of his own son. You're new. So be new. Don't go back to that old life. Don't go back it's a sexual immorality. So Paul wants to encourage them, but it's also a warning. Because if you claim to be a Christian, but you do this, but you live this way, but you persist in sin, if your life doesn't show that you've been washed and sanctified and justified, then maybe you haven't. And if you haven't, and if you never come to God through Christ, then you will face God's judgment. And Paul presses this point that we can't, we who've been made new cannot go back to our old lives. And he uses these different pictures to show it. Now, he says in verse 17, he who is, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You've been united. If you've trusted in Jesus, you've been united to him. And that's why he can say in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You've been joined to Jesus so closely that he regards your body as part of his body. So you shouldn't take your body and do anything that he wouldn't do with his. Right? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Your body is has been set apart for God's own dwelling. You have to treat it as holy, right? He says, he goes on, you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a price, with the blood of Jesus. God bought you with the life of his son. So glorify God in your body. Now, if you've been loved like this, and you've been claimed like this, you've been set free like this, Paul says, you must not go back to that old life. Your body is not for that anymore. It's for the Lord. It's for his glory. And you can glorify him through marital faithfulness. And you can glorify him through celibate singleness. But anything outside of that is sexual immorality. And it faces God's judgment. And now we need to look at one of the examples Paul names. Thirdly, homosexual practice is one form of sexual morality. He names it specifically in verse 9. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now understand that Paul is not speaking at the level of attraction. There are people who are attracted to other people of the same sex, and they are living faithfully to God. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who act on the attraction, who practice homosexuality. He says, if you persist in this, you will not inherit the kingdom. And he proceeds that with, do not be deceived. And this is an area where many people are being deceived. There are are people within the church today who are saying the traditional Christian understanding of homosexuality is based on a misreading and a misunderstanding of scripture. And actually, Christian faithfulness and living in a committed, consensual, lifetime, same-sex relationship or marriage, that those things are totally compatible. And that is not true. They're deceived. Some will say, for example, that what Paul says what Paul says here, it can't apply to committed, consensual relationships, because Paul couldn't have known of that in the first century that what Paul must have been thinking about was relationships between men and boys or between masters and slaves. Or what Paul was really concerned about was not committed relationships but promiscuous ones. And that's not true. People in the first century were aware of committed, lifelong, same-sex partnerships. And if Paul wanted to address the abuse of boys by men or one of the other situations, there were words in Greek he could have used. And he didn't. He chose to speak generally as a blanket statement. He assumes a consensual relationship. This, this phrase here, men who practice homosexuality, it actually translates two Greek words which refer to both partners in the relationship. He's not saying, you who abuse people are out. He's saying, both of you are out. If you look in Romans 1, it's the same thing. If you look in Leviticus 18, it's the same thing. Everywhere the Bible speaks about it, it speaks In these terms, it's homosexual practice in general that Paul says is outside of God's will. Now, other people will say, well, if it was that important, Jesus would have spoken about it. And it's true that Jesus never mentions homosexuality in the Gospels, but he does speak about sexual immorality. And Jesus was using the definition of his Bible which he treated as authoritative, which was the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, sexual morality unquestionably includes homosexuality. And Jesus never qualifies it. He says, everything but that. And Jesus speaks about marriage. There's a time when he's asked about divorce. And and when he was, he quoted from Genesis. This is what he said. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? When Jesus spoke about marriage, he meant a man and a woman. And there are people who say, well, this can't be wrong because I was born this way. And if I was born this way, then God must have made me like this. Now, I want to be really careful here. But I think it's important to be clear that there is no consensus about what causes people to be same-sex or opposite-sex attracted. It's been studied extensively, and we still don't know to what degree nature and nurture contribute to that identity. I don't mean to say that people, and I'm not saying that people who are same-sex attracted have chosen that. I don't think any of my friends who are same-sex attracted would say it was a choice. And if it, if it had been a choice they would have chosen many of them differently that's not what i'm saying but i think i think if we say i was born this way that's going beyond what science has established we don't know what causes it but i think asking does this desire come naturally, naturally to me is it's the wrong question okay we all have desires that come naturally to us and they're bad for us right the desire to eat six pieces of chocolate cake comes naturally to us, but we know not to do that, right? We, we have something that filters our desires. It's, the question is not, is this desire natural, but is this desire good? And if you're a Christian, you can't answer that question without asking, what does God say about it? Those who say that homosexual practice and Christian faithfulness are compatible... I'm sure that many of them are well meaning, but they're wrong. It's not true, and they're affirming a way of living that Paul and Jesus and God and the Bible say lead into judgment. So, where does that leave the Christian who loves God, embraces what the Bible says, and still has these desires? One of the hard truths here is that while God does change us, He does make us new. He has not promised to take those desires away this side of heaven. For some people he does, and for others he doesn't. That's hard. And so same-sex attracted Christians just see kind of two roads ahead of them, neither of which seem especially appealing. Either they can marry someone with whom there may be great friends, but to whom they're not attracted, and have kind of what they might feel like as a subpar marriage in life, or they can remain single, and, and be unmarried, and never have a love story, never raise kids, never grow old with someone. They just feel like kind of that door, that the happiness everyone else has, the door's kind of been slammed in their face. And I don't want to minimize the difficulty of that at all. At all. I just want to draw your attention. I just want to remind you that it's our culture Not the Bible telling you that if you don't have a great love story, if you don't get married, if you don't raise kids, that you're somehow less than fully human. Was Jesus less than fully human? Was Paul, who wrote this letter, neither of them were ever married? Now, remember that Paul said that God designed marriage as a picture of the love relationship between Christ and the church, which means that if you are unmarried and a Christian, you already have the reality to which marriage is only a pointer. You have the love of Jesus, which is way more satisfying than any marriage. So don't give in to fleeting desires which you know are not from Him. Give in to Him. Go deep with him. Draw near to him. Maybe he will change your desires in this life. Maybe he won't. But he will give you more of himself. Now, I know that what the Bible says about homosexuality and sexual morality, it's hard for some of you to hear. And, but nobody has to leave this morning weighed down by guilt or condemnation because Paul is absolutely clear about this last point, which is that all sin can be forgiven and all sinners cleansed through trusting in Jesus, through faith in him. Look at verse 11 one last time. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And everyone here needs that. Some of you have been washed, sanctified, justified, and some of you need to be. And God holds it out to you. Now, notice that we aren't the subject of any of those verbs. He doesn't say, you used to be like that, but you washed yourself. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Someone did something for you. The way that we move out from the place where we're facing God's judgment, where all of us start, to the place where we're safe from his judgment, treasured by him, secure in his love, what moves us from there to here is something he does for us. He's the one who washes. All we do is we come to him in repentance and faith. We we look at that old life and say, I'm not going to live there anymore. And we turn to him and we say, You paid the life of your son so I could belong to you. That's what I want. I want to be yours. And we come to him. Have you come to him? And if you have, You still need to come to him because temptations abound to go back to that old life. And the word Paul uses for that, he says, flee. Run away. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from the things that try to dominate you. Flee where? Flee to Jesus. Go to him. Remember what he's done for you. Remember who he is for you. Jesus loved you to death so that you could be joined to him, so you could become the dwelling place of his spirit. There is life and joy and satisfaction in that that we haven't even begun to taste. So together as a church, let's flee from sexual immorality and glorify God in our bodies. Now, I said at the beginning that we're going to go wrong if we don't hold both to truth and to love. So church... As we go from here, how can we love our same-sex-attracted neighbors as we love ourselves? How are we going to act when a gay couple visits sunrise on a Sunday morning? I hope that we don't lead with, you should know that we don't approve of this. I hope that we lead with, I am so glad that you have come to worship with us this morning. Would you like to sit with me so we can get to know each other? They don't need right then to be corrected. What they need is to be received with love and pointed to Jesus. How are we going to respond when a non-Christian friend comes out to us and tells us that they've decided to embrace a gay identity? What does it look like for us to affirm their humanity without affirming same-sex practice? I think we can thank them for telling us something that must have been really hard for them to say, especially if they know what we believe. We can say, you know that we think differently about this, but I would love to hear your story and how you've made this decision and what you think life looks like for you right now. Then later, there'll be a time for us to give them our perspective, but even then, our focus should not be mainly on their sin, but on the Savior that we both need. And how are we going to care for our fellow Christians who have unwanted same-sex desires? I hope we will be a people so loving and welcoming that they feel like they can tell somebody about their struggle. And I hope that we can be enough of the family that we are in Christ that nobody feels like to really be on the inside of Sunrise, you have to be married. We should be a church where families are having unmarried people over and inviting them into their lives, and unmarried people are having families over and inviting them into their lives. We are not going to be a great community for people with same-sex attraction until we're a great community for unmarried people. Now, you might be really wrestling right now, and that's okay. You might be the person who feels the draw both to a same-sex relationship and to Jesus. You are welcome here. Ask your questions. Voice your fears. Be prayed for. Keep coming on Sundays and explore what the Bible says. Don't let anything stand between you and the assurance that you belong to the one who gave his life so you could belong to him forever. And my offer for coffee still stands. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you that you love us enough to speak really hard things to us, that you love us enough to call us out of a life of death and into a life that is truly life, into life with you forever. And all of us, Father, you know, you know each heart, all of us are strugglers here. All of us have things that pull on us, that draw us back, that, that keep us from coming to you as fully as we want. And Father, thank you that you offer us both forgiveness, you wash us, but you also give us your spirit who makes us new, that you sanctify us, you justify us, you purify us, you make us who you've called us in Christ. And I pray that you, spirit, would come and do that ministry among us, that you would come and make us a holy people. And I pray, Father, for for anyone who is outside Christ that you would call to their hearts and draw them by grace. And for all of us, that you would take us deeper into your love in Christ. Father, make us a people marked by your love. In Jesus' name, amen.